Sometimes a lot of us relax and take a day of rest, but uh, come out on a Sunday evening and worship together and sing together and pray together and study a little bit together. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers tonight. I've been looking at several uh, passages uh, in the book of Numbers over the last several weeks. We've covered several episodes uh, that in Israel's history that are related to us in this book. Uh, there, there's a lot of material in the book of Numbers that is not narrative. It doesn't tell stories. But uh, we've been focusing on that part of Numbers that, that does tell a story. It is history. It's an account of events that take place in Israel's history. It covers that period of time in Israel's history. Between the time they come out of Egyptian bondage and they pass through the Red Sea and before they enter into the land of Canaan, the promised land. I remember that God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would make of his descendants a great nation, that he would give that nation a land to live in. It ended up being the land of Canaan. And they're on their way to the land of Canaan here in the book of Numbers. And eventually in the more distant future, uh, all nations would be blessed through one particular descendant of Abraham, who was, of course, Christ. And so God is working toward that, that ultimate plan. He's brought the descendants of Abraham, Israel, out of Egypt. He's leading them to the promised land. But at all the while, he's working with them, making them a holy nation, making them unlike the nations that are around them, uh, developing within them godliness and a respect for him and a respect for his ways, so that the Christ might come through them. And so that's the plan to bring Christ into the world through the descendants of Abraham. But they need to be a holy people. They need to be devoted to him and not uh, worshipers of other gods like the nations around them. And so God is working in that direction as we read about these episodes and their history in the book of Numbers. As, as you've noticed, I'm sure, and a lot of us have known this for a while, in several of these episodes, Israel is ungrateful to God. They don't appreciate what God has done for them. They're rebellious. They're without faith. They're disobedient. For example, on one occasion, Israel was to select 12 spies and send them into the land of Canaan and spy out the land and then bring back a report about what they found there. And so they do that. They go in, they stay 40 days in the land, they come back and they report to Moses and others that that, 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 that land is too strong for us. The people are too strong. The cities are fortified. We can't go in there and, and take them. Now there are two spies that said, hey, with the Lord's help, we can do it, so hey, let's just go. Let's just trust in the Lord. Let's have faith in Him. Let's go, and He'll give us the land according to His promise. But the people listen to the ten spies rather than the two. And so again, ungrateful, without faith, disobedient, and uh, several stories like that in the book of Numbers. Moses himself made an error at Meribah when he lashed out at the people with his words and struck the rock with his rod, contrary to the direction that God gave them. Korah rebels as well, challenging Moses and his leadership. And on one occasion, even Miriam, the sister of Moses, and Aaron, they challenge Moses' leadership also. And so it's typical behavior for Israel in the book of Numbers to be ungrateful and unfaithful and untrusting or distrusting in God and, and disobedient. On the other hand, God is always loyal. Now he gets frustrated with Israel 
And on occasion, he'll even say, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to wipe them out, Moses, and I'll start over with you. Moses intercedes for the people and persuades God to be patient that really his own name and his own reputation is at stake in the world. And so God listens to Moses and he relents of the disaster that he might have brought upon Israel otherwise. And so ultimately God is loyal to Israel and he continues to work with them patiently and with long suffering until the time is right. Now the passage we're going to look at tonight is another passage that discusses the disloyalty, uh, the unfaithfulness, the, un, the a lack of gratitude on the part of Israel. Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. In verse 4 it says, Israel set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So they got to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And so they're impatient. They're headed toward the promised land. They're going around Edom and, and, and they become impatient. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. The miserable food that they're alluding to is the, the manna that God was providing for them in the wilderness to, to feed them. And so, and so we, we, we hate this food, you know. And so they're unappreciative, they're ungrateful, and uh, they're, well, they're complaining about their conditions. Even though God is providing for them, He's taking care of them. Remember at the end of, the, end of their journey, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, you know, your clothes haven't worn out, your, your feet, your shoes haven't worn out, you've been adequately taken care of, but they've complained and grumbled and murmured all the way, all the way through. And so what God does in verse 6 is this. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people in Israel died. And because of their lack of appreciation, their lack of gratitude, their grumbling, their murmuring, their complaining, their lack of patience, all which happened over and over and over again during this period, God responds by sending fiery, poisonous serpents among them, and many of them are bitten, and many of them die as the result. And so, that's what the picture on the screen represents. The people appealed to Moses to appeal to God on their behalf. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that He may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent... Set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard, put it up on a pole, and it came about that if a serpent, serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And so Moses makes a replica of a serpent out of bronze. He puts it up on a pole. And anyone, this is, these are the directions of God, anyone, when they look up at that serpent, if they've been bitten, well, the, the, the snake bite won't bother them. They'll be, they'll be healed. And people do that. You can see that at the end of verse 9. If a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now there's an interesting epilogue 
uh, to this story in the book of 2 Kings chapter 18. If you turn over there, 2 Kings chapter 18, during the reign of Hezekiah, uh, this, this bronze serpent comes up again. It says in verse 4, Hezekiah removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah. And so he's ridding Israel of the false gods and goddesses that they've adopted under the influence of the people that they live among. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan, which is the word for bronze, or related to the word for bronze. And so it had basically become an idol to them. Now, now this is about 700 years later. It's not like the next year or the next year. Uh, about six, 700 years later, this bronze serpent is still around, and they're burning incense to it as if it were somehow a god itself. The passage is alluded to in the New Testament. In one of those allusions, Paul tells us that we are to learn from it. This is the place in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 12. We're going to go back to that passage in a few minutes. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 6 through 12, that, that this is written by way of example for us that we should learn from it. And so we want to try to learn a few lessons from this episode in the history of Israel. Moses lifted up the serpent. And so let's go over to that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and just take a look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where this episode in Israel's history is alluded to. It's, it's, it's put together, it's one of a list of several episodes from the Old Testament in which uh, Israel falls. And so let's just read a little bit, beginning in verse 1. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. Talking about Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. Remember, God led them by way of a cloud, and then they passed through the Red Sea. And so they were under the cloud and passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And so it's as if they were baptized, so to speak. And they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. And so we've already seen on, on more than one occasion, God provides water for them from the rock. Well, Paul here says the rock is Christ. Christ is providing that water. The, there's spiritual water come, not only physical water, but spiritual water. They're, they should be learning the lesson that God is providing for them. And of course, what God the Father does, God the Son is involved in as well. Nevertheless, he says in verse 5, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. For these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. That's the episode we're looking at tonight. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't fall. Now, there are several lessons to be learned from this example. You know, I think the most obvious one, and I'm not going to spend too long on this one, is, okay, look, stop the complaining, okay? <laughs> I 
Stop the grumbling. Uh, over and over again, they, they seem to be dissatisfied. They're grumbling. They're murmuring. They're complaining because they just don't have it the way they want it. And on some occasions, they'll say, you know, we had it much better in Egypt. It's just interesting how, as we look back to the past, we don't remember how hard it was. We just, we have selective memories. We, we, we remember how great it was. They were slaves in Egypt. They're crying out to God for, for relief. And on this, these occasions, they say, you know, as we had it so great in, in Egypt, why don't you bring us out here to die? And they murmur and complain and gripe about their situation. We, you know, we have a tendency to do that as well. Sometimes we murmur and gripe and complain. You know, I guess everybody has their pet peeve, I suppose. You know, you, you might know what yours is. <laughs> Mine is complaining. <laughs> I just can't take the complaining. <laughs> it just gets under my skin. And maybe that's why I was just raised in a family where there just wasn't much complaining. I mean, it, it, my, my mom and dad, they, they just didn't complain. I think I've told you the story how a lot of times on Sunday for lunch, my mother would fry, fry chicken. So she'd cut up the chicken. Yeah, you had to buy the chicken and cut it up yourself in those days. And so she'd fry the chicken and everybody kind of had their piece. I ate a thigh or a leg and, and my dad got the, well, what we call the pulley bone. You may not know what that is. And, and my mother, she got the breast. But if you wanted another piece, you know, there, there are two legs and two thighs. I can get another leg and another thigh. And, and my mother would get the neck, the chicken neck that she had fried. Now, there ain't a lot of meat on a chicken neck. <laughs> and my daddy would say to her, Rachel, why don't you get a different piece? Oh, I like the neck. You know, that's, that's her response. I, I like the neck. Of course, what she's saying is, I'm willing for other people to go first. I'm willing to have, let other people have the better part. And I'll be content and I'll be happy, perfectly satisfied with the net. She didn't complain about it. You know, it's just, so that became kind of a saying in our house, you know, well, I like the neck. So I guess I was just raised in that environment where you just didn't complain about things. And so that's my pet peeve. I, if I were in Moses' position, they'd drive me crazy. The, the complaining and the grumbling. You know, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Do all things without grumbling. And then in chapter 4, Paul says, Not that I speak from what I've, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any or every circumstance, I learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I know how to get along when things are good and, and, and prosperous, and I've got plenty and more than enough. But you know, I, I know how to get along without very much, too. I, I'm content in whatever state I am. And Israel needed to learn that. We need to learn that sometimes. And so that's maybe the first and most obvious lesson from these episodes. Just be happy with the provision that God provides, that God gives us, and be content with that. It doesn't mean can't try to better ourselves and, and, and you know, advance, but be, be satisfied and be content with God's provision. Well, the second point I want to make is on the screen. The first point wasn't on the screen. It's taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
This passage we just read a moment ago. You remember that, that series of events in Israel's history that's, that are alluded to there. And then he, he, he includes this event in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And then he reaches the point where he says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. At the beginning of the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul shows just how similar Israelites were to the Corinthian Christians. They both had been baptized, so to speak. Israel had passed under the, you know, they were under the cloud and passed through the sea. And, and so in a sense, they had been baptized. The Corinthians, of course, had been baptized as well. Acts chapter 18 tells us about. They had both eaten spiritual food. And so Israel ate spiritual food in the wilderness as God provided food and water. And so Christians, the Corinthians, they had also eaten spiritual food as they partook of the Lord's Supper. And so they were both kind of in similar situations. And yet Israel fell in the wilderness. Now they, they made several mistakes. And as a result of that, many of them fell. God was not pleased with them. And so he took action against them. His judgment came down upon them. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, the writer raises these questions. Who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Who provoked God in the wilderness? Everybody that came out of Egypt and passed through the Red Sea. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter into his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. Very similar passage, and he ends up in the same place. We need to take heed. We need to be careful lest we fall short as well, and we suffer the judgment of God. Some say that Christians, those who truly accept Christ, cannot fall away. Some teach that. That if, you're tr if you truly become a child of God, if you truly become a Christian, if you genuinely are converted, you can never fall away. You, you can never sin so as to be lost. But the point here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that both the Corinthians and Israel were in every way accepted by God, in every way accepted by Him. Yet Israel sinned and fell, and so could the Corinthians. Well, what else does it mean? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall in this context. What else could that mean? Yes, there is the danger that even Christians can sin and fall. There are lots of other passages to that effect. One is about a page earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says in verse 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so Paul says, I even recognize the possibility myself. I could preach to others, and I could bring them to Christ, and I could teach them. And yet, if I'm not careful and I don't discipline myself, to do what's right, to resist temptation, I myself might be disqualified. I myself might be lost. Imagine that. Paul the Apostle sinning so as to be lost. He recognized that possibility. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1, a passage we looked at a moment ago. Therefore let us fear. Now the book of Hebrews is written to Christians, those who have been once enlightened. Hebrews chapter 6 tells us, chapter 10 tells us the same thing. And so let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, 
any one of you may seem to have come short of it. And so it's possible that we can fall short, even though the promise has been extended to us. And so Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 tells us that if we continue, verse 23, I think it's in 13, verse 23, if we continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which we have heard, will be presented before the Lord holy and without blame, if we continue in the faith. And so we need to be careful, we, we may fall, just like Israel fell in the wilderness. That's how Paul uses this passage in the New Testament. Now being faithful doesn't mean living sinlessly, does it? And so we, if ever we become Christians, we're, we're not going to live sinlessly. Anybody who's been a Christian for very long has to come to grips with that fact. And so living faithfully involves repentance and the confession of sin when we stumble. And so that's part of being a faithful Christian. When we stumble and fall and make a mistake, when we sin from time to time, what does a faithful Christian do? Well, he acknowledges it. He, he, accepts, he admits it. He confesses it. And he pledges to do better. And so 1 John 1 verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. And then verse 9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And so that's part of our duty as Christians when we stumble and fall to confess our sins. And He'll forgive. And so take heed lest you fall. Now what can we include in the take heed part? Or we might say be careful or watch out lest you fall. Well there are several things we could involve and include there. We need to cultivate a heart that desires to be pleasing to God. That's part of taking heed, being careful. Cultivate a heart that desires to be pleasing to God. In the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. And so we want to develop that heart, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, Paul says, We make it our aim, it's our ambition to be well-pleasing to Him. And so that's part of taking heed. We want to be well-pleasing to Him. We want to develop that attitude. We want to uh, develop that approach to life. A second thing we might do is equip ourselves so that we can resist the attacks of Satan. And so, take heed, equip yourselves. Be ready when Satan attacks and he tempts us. We're, we're ready to defend ourselves against the attack. The book of Ephesians talks about the armor of God that we can put on so that we can withstand the assault of, of the devil. Put on truth and righteousness. Put on the gospel and faith. Put on salvation and the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 11, Your word I've laid up in my heart so that I might not sin against you. That's part of taking heed. Learn the Word. And then when you're tempted, you can recall it and use it to resist the temptation. We can draw strength and encouragement from being with others who desire to be pleasing to God. I thought about Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus becomes a Christian. Eventually, he'll become known as Paul. He makes his way down to Jerusalem after some time. And 
he wanted to join himself to the disciples there, to associate with the disciples in Jerusalem. Now, why, why did he want to do that? Why, why would anybody want to go and join themselves or associate with other disciples on a regular basis? Well, to derive strength, to be encouraged, and to encourage and to strengthen others. And so verse 28 says, he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, and they were attempting to put him to death. When the brethren heard of it, uh, they brought him to Caesarea and sent him on to Tarsus. And so he was with them. He was encouraging them. He was being encouraged. And so that's how we can be careful. That's how we can prepare. Take heed. Draw encouragement from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Help them and encourage them. We don't do well in isolation. <laughs> Most people don't do very well just by themselves. No, we need the encouragement of others, and so that's one thing that we can do to put ourselves in a position to succeed. And then we can avoid putting ourselves in a position to sin. Sometimes, sometimes we might, <laughs> there, may, there, there may, be a, may have been a time in your life at some point when you're in a situation and it's not a good situation and you think, how in the world did I get here? You know, <laughs> that might happen sometimes, but a lot of times, carelessly, we put ourselves in a bad situation. We, we're just not careful, we're not thinking, and so we put ourselves in a dangerous situation spiritually. Romans 13 verse 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And then, as 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us, take that way of escape. Remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 tells us that nothing is going to happen to us that hasn't happened to other men. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure. And so how do we take heed? Look for that way of escape. Here we are, we're being tempted. I know there's a way out. I know there's a way to avoid succumbing to the temptation. What is it? Look for it, find it, and, and take it. We, we need to learn from the mistakes of Israel, don't we? We need to be careful, lest we fall like they did. A second observation from all of this is, you know, those, those bitten were healed when they looked to the serpent. Notice the phrase back in Numbers chapter 21, God tells Moses to make this serpent, put it, up, put it up on a pole, and he says, it will come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he'll live. When he looks at it, he'll live. And then you see in the very next verse, in verse 9, if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And, and so, in order for a bitten person to be healed from his illness that was inflicted on him by the serpent, there was something that he had to do, right? He had to do something, didn't he? He had to look at it. He had to look to the bronze. What if he didn't look? What if he said, I, I just don't see the point, you know? I, I just don't see the connection between a bronze serpent and... I, I, I just, uh, well, what if he didn't look? Would he have been healed? No. Because, see, God said, when he looks at it, he'll be healed. Now, does that mean that there was power for healing inherent in the bronze serpent? No, no, no. The power was in God. God did the healing, 
They did their healing when a person looked. Does that mean that those who looked at the serpent healed themselves by the power of their own works? So let me say that again. Did the people who looked, did they heal themselves by the power of their own works? No, no. They were healed by the power of God. That's clear, isn't it? Healed by the power of God. Healed by God's grace, in fact, when they looked. It only means that God established a condition they were required to meet for God to heal them. What was the condition? They had to look. Fortunately, some did look at the serpent, the bronze serpent, and were healed. There are other occasions like that where in order to receive God's blessing, there's something for us to do. Noah and his family would be saved from the coming flood if he he built an ark and built it according to the instructions that God gave him in Genesis chapter 6. The walls of Jericho fell in Joshua 6 when the Israelites marched around the city. God provided the victory when they followed God's commands to win the city. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there Naaman was cleansed of his leprosy when he washed in the Jordan seven times. The point is that God's promises are granted when we meet the conditions that He establishes. For example, let me, let me look at a couple of examples of that. Matthew chapter 6 is a good illustration of that point. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching His disciples to pray. And He says in verse 12, part of this prayer, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now Jesus comments on that in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Is there anything that we have to do in order to be forgiven of our transgressions? Is there any condition that we have to meet? It's pretty clear there is, isn't it? If you forgive others, I will forgive you. If you do not forgive others, I will not forgive you. Yeah, there's there's something that we have to do. That's not all that we have to do, but that illustrates the point that sometimes God's blessing and God's gift is given on a conditional basis. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 there, on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching... Uh, the, the gospel. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus. His conclusion is that God has made him both Lord and Christ. The people in the audience just a few days earlier had crucified Jesus as an imposter, as a blasphemer. And now Peter has persuaded them that God has raised him up from the dead and seated Jesus at his own right hand. And he is Lord and Christ. And people in the audience, they're crying out, what, what do we do? What do we need to do? And Peter says, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, how is it that they are forgiven of their sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, they're to repent, and they are to be baptized. And then they would receive God's blessing. There's conditions, aren't there? What are the conditions here? Well, know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the one condition. What else do we need to do? Repent. 
and be baptized for the remission of your sins. In Acts chapter 22, in verse 16 there, Saul of Tarsus was asked by Ananias, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. How, how, is his sin, how are his sins going to be washed away? By arising and be, being baptized. That's not the only thing involved. He had already become a believer. He was already penitent, willing to change his life. And so he was told to arise and be baptized. Does this mean that there's power in the water to save? No, no. Not any more than there's power in that bronze serpent to heal. The power's not in the water, just any more than the power was in the serpent. The power is in God. And God heals when people looked at the bronze serpent. And God washes sins away when penitent believers are baptized in the name of Jesus. Does this mean that we save ourselves by the power of our own works? No. That doesn't mean that at all. Any more than a person that looked at that bronze serpent was healing himself by the power of his own work. No, no, it's by the grace of God. It's a gift. It's a gift given on condition. Look, look, at, uh, look at Colossians chapter 2, for example. This is a good passage to support the point I'm trying to make. In verse 12, Paul says that we've been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through, through faith, through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. We were buried with Him in baptism, but we're doing so in faith, in the work, not our own works, but in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 22, verse 16, Saul is told to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, not his own name, but the name of the Lord. And so this only means that God has established conditions for us to meet in order to be forgiven, just as faith is a condition. And so we are justified by faith, but so is repentance, the confession of faith and baptism. And so this episode involving the bronze serpent helps us to understand how God's gift of spiritual healing is given. One more point. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so Christ has been lifted up on the cross. That's John chapter 3. Look at John chapter 3. This is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He's got some questions or something he wants to talk to Jesus about. Jesus tells him, you, you must be born again. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. They talk about that for a little while. And then in verse 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, Christ, will be lifted up, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. There are some similarities between the cross and the serpent in the wilderness. The action involved in Moses putting the serpent on a pole and lifting it up is similar to Jesus being crucified. Moses fastened the serpent on a pole and lifted it up. Jesus' body is fastened to the cross and lifted up. If you want to know what the expression lifted up means, it seems to be used in a special way, a technical sort of way. 
Look at John chapter 12 and verse 32 where Jesus says, If I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. But he's saying this to indicate what kind of death he was going to die. If I'm lifted up, that indicated what kind of death he would, he would die. He's going to be lifted up on the cross. And so those actions are similar, aren't they? Moses takes a bronze serpent. He fastens it to this pole and he lifts it up. Jesus' body is fastened to the cross and it's lifted up. The effect involved in each event is similar. People are healed of their disease when they look to the serpent. People are healed of their spiritual disease, sin, when they look to Christ. Reminded me of Isaiah 53 and verse 5. By His stripes we are, what? By His stripes we are healed. Healed spiritually. And so the effect is similar, isn't it? People were healed when they looked to the bronze serpent in Numbers, and people are healed of their spiritual disease when they look to Christ. Now there are some important differences as well. Those bitten who looked were cured of their physical illness and restored to a few more years of physical life. But those who look to Christ in faith are healed of spiritual illness and given eternal life. John chapter 3 and verse 15, Whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. This word lifted up is an interesting word. It's used a, a few different ways in the New Testament. The word lifted up may mean just to raise something up, like a bronze serpent on a pole, or it might mean to exalt or enhance, an enhancement of honor, position, or power. The noun form may refer to rank or degree, and so he's exalted, he he's, uh, has a higher rank. A form of this word is used of God in the expression, the most high, the most lifted up, the most exalted one. A negative use would be to exalt oneself in pride and or arrogance. And so not only is Jesus lifted up on a cross, but He, through the cross, is exalted, He's lifted up, exalted, to the right hand of God. Philippians chapter 2 says that He humbled Himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted Him. Jesus is the great physician. He's come to heal spiritually, the spiritually sick. Matthew chapter 9 verses 9 through 12 illustrate that point. His miracles of healing symbolize this. He's come to reverse the effects of sin. And so in Luke chapter 4, you remember, He heals the man who was paralyzed on, on the bed, brought to the house by His friends, led down through the roof, and Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. And so to illustrate that He has the power to forgive sin, He, he heals the man. And so Jesus' healing ministry, if you want to call it that, His his, his work of healing was simply an illustration of the fact that He's come to heal us of our sin. The question then is, have you looked to Jesus for healing? That's the question, isn't it? Have you looked to Jesus for this kind of healing? There are some in the Old Testament who were bitten by a snake and they looked to he for healing to the serpent. We've all been bitten, so to speak, spiritually. We all suffer the disease of sin. There's healing. It can be healed. It can be cured. It can be washed away if we look to Jesus for it. Chuck has been teaching on 
biblical covenants in, uh, in our Sunday morning and Wednesday night class. And one of the points that he made is that you know, Jesus is seen all through the Bible. Jesus is seen all through the Old Testament. Start as early as Genesis 3.15 and all the way through we, we see Jesus in one episode or another, or one passage or another. We see Jesus here as well, don't we? Powerful lessons can be learned from what seem to be obscure and minor events in the Old Testament. So this, this, this passage doesn't take very many verses, just a few. And look at the powerful lessons that we learn. Be careful lest you fall. Those bitten were healed when they looked to the serpent. And so there's something for us to do in order to be healed. And just like healing was provided when Moses lifted up that serpent, spiritual healing is provided in the cross of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity this day to come together and to worship you. We pray, Father, that the things we've done today have been well-pleasing to you, that they've had a good effect on us as well. We honor you. We, we glorify you in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, in the observance of the Lord's Supper, in, in our lives as well, Father, we seek to honor and to glorify you. We pray, Father, that we've done that today, that we'll continue to do that. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we have access to it, that we can read it and understand it and learn what you would have us to do. And Father, we pray that you'll open our eyes, that we might see the wonderful things that are contained in it. Father, help us to see the truth that you would have us to see in studying this episode tonight. Help us to be careful, Father, knowing that if we are not, we may very well fall to our spiritual demise and destruction. Help us to see what you would have us to do, Father, to be right with you and have that willing mind to, to do that, whatever you ask us to do, so that we can receive the benefit. And Father, help us to look to Jesus. Look to Him as our Savior. Look to Him as the great physician who will cure all manner, all kinds of spiritual disease. Help us to find our spiritual health in Him and help us to grow and advance in that spiritual health and well-being each day. We're thankful again, Father, for the opportunity to study tonight. We pray that we might be impacted by the power of Your Word today, tomorrow, and every day as we go through our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.